If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 again this week as we work our way through this great letter written by Peter to Roman provinces in Asia Minor thousands of years ago. Our oldest child, Autumn, was born in England. When people hear that, they sometimes ask if she has dual citizenship. She doesn't. They used to do it that way. If a, an expat had a son or daughter born in England, they would get English citizenship. But back in the 80s or so, they stopped doing that. She does have an English birth certificate. And I think she could more easily apply to live there than the rest of us Yanks could. But if she did have dual citizenship, she could get a British passport easily. She could freely move and live there, of course. But she couldn't live in both countries at the same time. She's a finite person, right? No person can be in two countries at the same time, unless, I suppose, they straddle a line where two countries meet. Not the case with the U.S. and England. That's not what dual citizenship means anyway. But Christians are a people with a kind of dual citizenship that's like that. It's not like someone today who has two passports yet only lives in one country at the same time. When we say that Christians are like those with dual citizenship, we mean they mysteriously live in two worlds at the same time. They're between two worlds. We sometimes say, from Jesus' words in John 17, that we Christians were in this world, but we're not of it. We have one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come. One on earth and one in heaven, in a sense, mysteriously and mystically. More than once so far in this letter, we've seen Peter highlight this reality, talk about this reality, give words to this reality. But now as we come to the middle of chapter 2 this week, the reality of being a dual citizen, it gets tested, you could say. It begins to be fleshed out, this thing of dual citizenship. He talks about it in some very concrete and specific ways. We have before us a difficult passage today. Not difficult because it's hard to understand, but difficult because it's hard to believe. Difficult because many of us don't think this way. This is one of those messages where at some point you're going to get mad at me. At some point you will not agree with me. You'll be offended by what I say. But as a biblical Christian, as a Berean Christian who tests the teaching of God's word with God's word, tests it according to the scriptures, you'll have to test what I say today. You'll have to test your reaction to it today. And you'll have to test what you have believed and what you practice according to the scriptures. In other words, if or when, I should say, you're troubled by what I say today, you'll have to ask ask yourself whether you're offended because I've said something different than the Bible or because you've been believing something different than the Bible. Hopefully we all know The latter is always a possibility for us. So there's some controversy in this message, but you can put your dukes down for now. We're still about 10 minutes away from that. (laughs) You'll see what I'm talking about as I read the passage, and then we'll get into some other things for about 10 minutes or so, and then we'll finally get this controversial stuff going. But here's what it says in 1 Peter 2. We'll start reading in verse 9, some verses we've looked at already. And then we'll read all the way to verse 17. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, in recent weeks, we've overlapped our passages one week to another. In other words, instead of, instead of leaving off in one verse and the next week going to the next, we've overlapped them. That's been on purpose. That's not been because we've ran out of time or something like that. I plan to do that each week. And the reason we did that, the reason we planned to do it that way, is so that we would see some flow. Uh, this is a letter, remember. This is uh, not just a collection of different messages or sermons or bits of information It's a letter, and it has some flow to it. Yes, there are sections, there are themes, and from that angle, it's good that our Bibles today have headings. Your Bible may have headings, it may have paragraphs. That's helpful for us to see headings and themes and sections. But because it may have been seven days since you last read anything in 1 Peter, or maybe because you can't remember anything about last week's message um, and because we're going through First Peter at such a slow pace, it can be helpful if sometimes we take uh, sort of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. So as I said, we've already spent more than one week on verses 9 through 12. This week, I want to reference those verses only to show how they explain this thing of dual citizenship and to show that they lead into the really the main body of the letter of 1 Peter where this thing of dual citizenship gets very specific. So the first thing in your notes, dual citizenship explained. Verses 9 to 12 do this for us. Verses 9 to 10 speak on the one hand of one world where there's one citizenship that's a heavenly one. So verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. That's spiritual, that's heavenly, that's otherworldly. That's one, where, one world in which our foot is planted. It's the one to come. But verses 11 to 12 speak on the other hand of the other world, the earthly one. Especially with this language of sojourners and exiles. Peter's used the word exile twice already. And these words, sojourners in exiles, probably have a double meaning. First, sojourners in exiles are spiritually so. Like we've been talking, they're between two worlds. It's like God's people in the book of Exodus when they were rescued from the domain of bondage and tyranny and slavery in in Egypt. But they weren't yet to the promised land. They were between two worlds. They were people on the way. They were pilgrims or sojourners. Peter, I think, is talking about us being sojourners and exiles like that. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, but we're not home yet. We're on the way. We are are pilgrims too. But... Another way of looking at it, the other meaning for sojourners and exiles is that they would be literal exiles in a sense, at least those to whom Peter was writing at this time. They've been cast aside by their society, by culture, by, by, by kings, and by the rule around them. They may have been on the inside of it all before Christ, in favor with everyone around them, but now they're on the out looking in. So Christians are now home, we could say, spiritually. Home with God. We're a people now. We're his people. And yet, simultaneously, we're no longer at home in this world. This world isn't our home. We're just a passing through. There's some truth to that in the old spiritual. Christians are now beloved. That's how verse 11 begins. Beloved Loved ones, loved of God, loved of each other, loved by me, Peter says. Christians are loved, but not by everybody. Verse 12, 
He says, when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when. Now, in these days, Christians were spoken against and spoken against as evildoers. That might be shocking to you. You might think, like today, people don't like Christians because, oh, they're hoity-toity or, or they're snooty or, or, or they're proud or, or condescending. They think they have the truth, something like that. In those days, though, in Peter's day, they were spoken of as evildoers. Those are pregnant words when he says that. Because pluralism wasn't just a reality in the first century Roman world. It was national policy. The Romans had this practice, you could call it God swapping. When they would take over an, another nation, they would adopt all of its gods, and then the people they just took over would have to adopt all of the, the pantheon of Roman gods as their own as well. It really made for, um, for safety, you could say. It really made for... Uh, a good battle plan. If these people decide to do an insurrection, I mean, they don't have a specific God on their side. You share all the gods. No one God is for them. Christians, though, can't do that kind of thing, can they? Like the Jews before them, they were steadfast in their belief in one God, which made the trading guilds difficult for them. Trading guilds were a centerpiece of the Roman world and its economy. Each trade had a, a guild, and you would trade with people in this guild. And with this guild, you also had a, a god that got adopted. And so part of the trading process in this guild would be making sacrifices to your trade's god. Christians can't do that sort of thing. So they're no longer in the Sam's Club or Amazon.com Club or whatever you would call today, except they didn't have many options. They had this one. They're on the outside because, well, it looked like they were messing with the economy, which was no small thing. And tied up with the economy and tied up with society and tied up with culture was the belief that the emperor was God or a God. So one commentator on this passage says, to challenge the divinity of the emperor was to challenge Roman rule as a whole. It was a challenge to the social fabric. It was a threat to cultural continuity and economic stability. Christians in these days were also accused of being insurrectionists, being so anti-Rome, they were on the verge of, of trying some sort of massive revolt. At first, when they're few in number, it's no worry, but they're multiplying more and more as the decades go on, and hence their threat is growing by the day. They were accused of atheism by some because they wouldn't make sacrifices to other gods, and they couldn't really show the people around them their god. Everyone else could say, look, this is my god, and here's another god, and where's your god? I, well, he's invisible. <laughs> sure he is. Sure he is. They thought that they were atheists. It's ironic. They weren't thought of as fundamentalists in their day. They were thought of as worse heathens than others. They were accused of cannibalism because there was a misunderstanding, a rumored misunderstanding about the Lord's Supper, what it meant to eat the body and the blood of Jesus. They were accused of incest because they kept calling each other brother and sister. And also noteworthy is that when Peter wrote this letter to Christians in these Roman provinces, it was about the same time as something called the Great Fire of Rome. Ever heard of it? The Great Fire of Rome happened in 64 AD. It burned through central, what we would call downtown Rome. It burned through Rome in 10 days and consumed the majority of downtown Rome. Nero was the emperor then, not a good guy. It was rumored that Nero himself started this thing, this fire. And he could have. He was crazy enough to do that kind of thing. But who knows? Regardless, to deflect blame on this fire, he insisted that it was the Christians who started the fire. They were already hated by the culture around them, and so this rumor spread faster than the fire itself. 
and it marked the beginning of widespread and heinous persecution. It now became law to persecute Christians. They were eaten by animals. They were burned as lanterns in Nero's gardens. And some were crucified, like Peter. Peter, as he writes this, is probably three years away from being crucified by Nero himself. It became Roman policy to stomp out Christianity. Ha. That's what Peter means when he subtly says, when they speak against you as evildoers. Misunderstood, misrepresented, hated, and not just hated based on the facts, but hated based on false pretenses. So Christians are at war. We always have been. But Peter insists Christians are not at war with the world. They're at war with self and sin. Verse 11, he says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a war. It's a battle for your soul. It's a battle against the passions of the flesh. Remember, we're sojourners. We've been set free from the penalty and bondage of sin, but, but not yet from the presence of sin. We're in progress. We're people on the way. We're pilgrims. And part of our pilgrimage is shedding the old skin and, and putting on the new and more and more of it all the time. The world may be at war with them, but how will the Christians respond to the world? Well, look down at verse 12. I'll just paraphrase it, and you look down and see the language there. How do they respond to this war with the world or the war of the world? Well, they're to be honorable in their conduct. They're to respond, verse 12, with good deeds. The world may speak against them and call them evil, try to stomp them out, but the Christian hope is actually that the world would come to see, see the truth. See, to believe what they've come to believe, they, that they would come to glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the day when Jesus returns. The Christian hope is that those who are saying evil about them, those who are persecuting to the death, would, like their Savior, would say, Father, forgive them, that they would be saved. Christians may be cast out of a society, but they cannot retreat from it. They will not go away. Notice it says your conduct among the Gentiles in verse 12. It says that they may see your good deeds. You've got to be around them for this to take place, for them to see, for them to change, for them to have their mouths stopped, and even better, glorify God have to get up close. So that takes us through verse 12. We've wrapped that up now. Then Peter moves on to give us examples. The second thing in your notes, dual citizenship exemplified. Exemplified. This is a very quick point. A very quick point just to show that verses 11 and 12 are really a springboard that launches into the main body of the letter where, people, where Peter gives us examples and, and tests for our dual citizenship. So notice, we'll scan through chapter 2 and chapter 3 with just a verse here or there. Notice what he says. He says as sojourners in exiles, verse 11... We should be subject to, and we should honor, verse 13, civil authority. And then he goes on from there. Then verse 18, he talks about servants and masters. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Then chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands. Then chapter 3, verse 7, this one isn't husbands subjecting themselves to their wives, but, but wives being shown honor by their husbands. And then chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you, and then he goes to talk about the church, be unified, live out your heavenly citizenship by honoring each other like this and this and this and this. So that's point number two, and that's how we know the flow of what we're looking at this week and in weeks to come. 
But now we've got to go back to that first example, the controversial one. Well, the controversial one for this week, next week, and the week after is not exactly not controversial. But we've got plenty of, of controversy for this week alone. We come to this, we could say, the sermon proper of dual citizenship in civil government. And let's just read those verses again in light of what we just talked about with Nero and Christians being spoken of against and Roman policy against them. From Rome, Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think we can summarize this passage in four points. First, government is God's design. Government is God's design. Verse 13 says, every human institution, whether the emperor is supreme or, verse 14, governors, and I have a feeling he could just go on with other kinds of officials and other kinds of offices, other kinds of governments. They are, he says, sent by him, sent by God. God is behind the institution, human as it is. It says human institutions. Imperfect as they are, he's behind the institution and he's behind the individual at that place at that time. Proverbs says over and over, God is the one who puts kings on their thrones. Their hearts are even in his hand. Like water, he just turns it wherever he wishes. Romans 13.1, by Paul, the apostle, says something very similar. That there is no authority in government except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now remember when Peter says, when Paul says as well, be subject to the emperor and honor the emperor, he doesn't just have an office in mind. He doesn't just have a government in mind or a title in mind. He has a, a person in mind. And that person was the the devilish, the despotic, the possibly insane Nero who wickedly and illegitimately ascended to his throne. That would be its own three to five minute story, which we don't have time for this morning. Short of it is, the mom of Nero took out her husband and the one, Nero, who wasn't, The one to go to the throne was put on the throne by the mom. So, he's on the throne, but not because he should be. And yet, Peter says of that Nero, Peter says the emperor is one to be subject to, one that deserves honor. Now, in the Old Testament, God recognized the legitimate rule of all kinds of bad kings. It doesn't mean they were good kings. They were bad kings. But God recognized their position as kings. Kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus, others. Yes, at times God dethroned those ungodly kings. He overturned governments and nations, yes. But he didn't say they weren't kings. He didn't say they didn't have authority. Jesus himself recognized the authority of Caesar. Remember that time when In Mark 12, the religious leaders try to trick Jesus. Should we pay tithes? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, give me a coin. Whose face is that? Caesar? And he says those famous words now. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He was saying something so radical. Surely... Intent to offend both those who would think Caesar is illegitimate and those who think Caesar is 
God. Jesus will have neither of those. Jesus also recognized the God-given authority of the man who was about to sign his death warrant. That's staggering. Let me say that again. Jesus recognized the God-given authority of the man who was about to sign his death warrant, Pilate. John 19, Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus didn't say, you don't have authority. You ain't got nothing. You're a joke ruler. No, Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus' authority trumps Pilate's authority But Pilate has authority. Pilate is a ruler and Jesus recognized it as such. Government is not just a have-to thing. It's not just pragmatism at work. It's not just old history. We can't get past this thing of governments. Part of subduing the earth, that command given Adam and Eve in the garden, would be set up rules, set up authority, set up structure. Especially this side of the fall with sin entering the world, we need government all the more. Government is God's design. Secondly, government is good. Government is good. Now, before you think me a big government or small government guy, just put that out of your head. You're thinking in in contemporary categories already and too fast. Government is good because Peter says so and because Peter's writing us the word of God. 1 Peter 2.14 says... Governments and governors are sent by him, God, two things, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Carrots and sticks. Romans 13 says much of the same thing, even at greater length. Now, of course, sometimes the state gets things wrong. Often, actually. Some governments are more wrong more frequently than others. But a lot is right in this world, and a lot is right in our little world of the U.S., New Mexico, and Albuquerque. Of course, sometimes the guilty go free. Of course, sometimes punishments are too lean. Sometimes the innocent get punished. Some gracious get swindled. Some freedoms are unjustly lost. Some things just aren't constitutional, yes. We may be just and right to be slightly outraged when those things happen. But regardless of that, we give very little thought to all that is right and decent in our society. What makes the headlines is not the patrolling policeman who stopped a burglary or the police car driving by that prevented a a potential burglar from even going one step further toward a house. What makes the news is the politician who's fallen or lied, not the principal and hard-working politician. That's not an oxymoron. Think of all the crimes that might have been. Think of all the wars that might have been. Think of all the lies that could have been. Think of all the cover-ups that never were because they weren't needed. I know it's, it's almost unfathomable to think about. It's hard to imagine what might have been or what isn't or what we don't know. But that just shows we don't give very much thought to this at all. When all seems in shambles in our country, when we're simply frustrated with inefficient bipartisan politics, just go ahead and read some headlines on Somalia again. We've forgotten. It could be worse. It almost always could be worse. A bad government is better than no government. And most are Decent, considering we're in a fallen world. My point is that we shouldn't notice the problems or try to fix the problems. My point either is not that we should, we should be more patriotic and proud of what's good here and look down our nose on those other poor snob countries. Now, my point is that we should more frequently notice and thank God for the goodness of government. It dishonors him 
to gloss over a million good things and bitterly fixate on the most recent bad thing. Government is good. At least it should be. I think when Peter writes verse 14, it's a double-edged knife. I think it's a wink in the direction of Rome and Roman officials. When he writes, he's writing to Christians, they're sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I think Peter writes that with a smile. I think that's the elbow of Peter in the side of Nero and others. Just, oh, it's subtle. It's so subtle. I think Paul does the same thing in Romans 13. Others have thought this as well. This isn't my, my great idea that's uh, you know, the first one to, to think of it up. Think it up. I, I, think, I think when Peter writes this, he's indirectly speaking to the, the secular and ungodly government of his time to remind them of the best purposes of government. Ideally, government does this. It punishes those who do evil. And I think by implication, Peter's saying, look, Rome, look, Nero, we Christians, we don't do evil. Not habitually, not all the time, not publicly, not, not for the, the taking down of a society. Whatever evil we do, we don't want to do. That's the whole point of my letter here. One of the best purposes for government is praise for those who do good. We're trying to do good. That's what I keep saying in this section. Do good. Do good deeds. Do good. Do good. Honor. Show honor. Subject yourself. That's what we're aiming for, Nero. So I think it does work both ways. Tuck that away. I think Peter subtly, humbly, carefully, maybe even sneakily, speaks to the government as he writes to Christians. That brings us to the third point. Government is to be obeyed and honored. Obey and honor are here. Verse 13, be subject, which means place yourself in subjection to rulers and to laws. Obey them. And verse 17, honor the emperor. Not just obedience, not just a clean nose, not just stay out of trouble, not just don't go to jail. Honor. That's an inside thing. That's a heart thing. It's a mind thing. That's hard. But Peter gives us so many reasons. The government is to be obeyed and honored for the Lord's sake, verse 13. You don't have to do it for them. Do it for the Lord's sake. Do it because institutions and specific individuals are God's plan and God's appointment. Again, Romans 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. We also obey and honor the government for our good. I know it's all seriously imperfect, but, but generally speaking, even in our broken country, generally speaking, it's true. Still today, you do good, you won't get in trouble. There are even some benefits. You do bad, you do it enough, eventually it'll catch up with you and you'll go to jail. It's a good thing. Peter has a better reason than that, though. It's the will of God, verse 15, that we obey and honor government. And then a better reason than that, one he talked about in verse 12. The hope is that some will see your good deeds your honorable conduct, and they'll glorify God. They'll be saved. The hope is that, verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Remember, they were spoken of against everywhere, spoken of as evil. Some spoke it ignorantly. They didn't know. They just heard it. Makes sense. Yep. And they said it. They were foolish in that. They were ignorant in that. And Peter says, by your good deeds you could put them to silence. The word put to silence here is gag or, or muzzle them. But not muzzle by force. Muzzle by your faithfulness. Muzzle by a change of mind. 
And all of this, if it feels horribly constraining to you, negative to you, walk the straight and narrow, this feels like Shawshank prison or something now. Well, it's actually an expression of freedom. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We like this verse. Yeah, live as free. That's our country and home of the brave. But Peter doesn't mean free like you might think. We're free to be servants of God. Now, he's telling us the government is not ultimate. We're free from any of its final tyranny, even if we're beheaded by it. But Christians cannot use their freedom in Christ, their freedom in the gospel, their freedom with God to be a cover-up for evil. And I think the cover-up of evil he has in mind is not subjecting yourself to the government. You can't say, I'm a part of a new citizenship. I'm a people. I'm a holy nation. I'm a priest in it. You can't tell me what to do, policeman. He's saying, you have that freedom in a sense, but you don't. You have it on a, on a heavenly level. Yes, it's true. You're free in Christ. You're his. You have, you have something that trumps all other authority around you. And yet, don't let it be a cover-up for evil. You're servants of Christ. And so you must submit to them. Submit to God. Submit to his plan and his institutions and his will and his commandments. You see, when we submit to governing authorities, maybe especially when they're ungodly governing authorities and they're hard to submit to, we're living out the freedom that we have in Christ, a freedom that is a freedom from our rebellious nature, a freedom from our lawlessness. That's our old way. Now, before you, yeah, but, yeah, but, all the way to the restaurant. Before we even try to apply this to our U.S. 21st century American context, we can't forget Peter's context. I know right now, all these things are going through your mind. Does Ryan not read the headlines? Ryan, President Obama, dot, dot, dot. But do you know he says? Do you know he believes? Do you know they... But in each case, I can say, yeah, but do you know Nero? Do you know Nero? Like, I will always trump you, right? This guy's bad. Nero's worse. This government's not good. Rome's worse. If Peter and Paul can say these things about Rome, if Jesus can say, pay taxes to the government that will unjustly execute me, We zip it. We follow the law of the land. We don't ignore the laws that we don't like. We don't skip the ones that are inconvenient. We don't pay the taxes that we think are fair. We pay the taxes that we owe. Yes, taxes are a part of this. That was the very thing Jesus was talking about in Mark 12, about that coin with Caesar's head on it. You give to Caesar what Caesar's you pay. And Paul in Romans 13 brings up taxes as well. After he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, he says in verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing of justice in your society. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We follow the law of the land and we honor those who are above us, whether they've been put there through their ancestry or through some sort of switch, some murder, some injustice like that, or through our democratic vote. What might it look like today to show honor to the government and to government officials? I think it means being humble and respectful to policemen and to to judges, teaching our kids to do the same. I think we show honor by realizing how hard certain jobs are. We wouldn't want them 
we probably wouldn't do better. You're probably not smarter. You might be more principled, you think. You don't know that you do better in that job. We show honor by giving the benefit of the doubt. We hate it when people try to connect dots in our lives, connect dots on our Facebook page. I saw you there and there. You did this. We hate that when it happens to us, but we're professionals at connecting dots in celebrities' lives or in politicians. We show honor by frequently acknowledging the fact that a headline isn't always truth and that the information that follows is not always the full story. We lack data. We suspend judgment until the facts are in. If we tisk, tisk, tisk at all, we save it for later. We honor by acknowledging that we're fellow sinners that we're deserving of God's eternal wrath and grace is all of grace. It's not of our works or wisdom or goodness or strength. We show honor by not expecting more than we should. Not perfection. Uh, We think our politicians should bat a thousand. We sure don't want that kind of scrutiny put on our own jobs though, do we? We show honor as fellow, fellow human beings to those who are made in God's image. We show honor in that we acknowledge the fact that we share many ideals. We disagree with this and this and that. Okay, but what if we made a list of what we agree with? We show honor by noticing and acknowledging and cheering what's good, even if it's a slim silver lining on a dark cloud. We show honor because it's divine institution that stands behind that office. It's divine appointment that that person is there at this time. We show honor not by speaking about people as though they weren't people. In other words, we show honor by not speaking about, say, the president as if we would do the same if he were in the room with us. None of us would do that, right? We'll post things, we'll say things. I'm convicted this week that I'm I'm sure I say some things that I would never dare to say in the the presence of a government official that I'm talking about. Why is that? We show honor not by withdrawing, but with respectful and thoughtful engagement. So we vote, we study, we look things up, we, we, we think, we talk, we discuss. Especially in a democracy, you... Show honor by engaging, not by retreating. So everyone younger than me, I'm talking to you right now, your struggle is not that you watch too much Fox News. It's that you have way too much apathy. You're disenfranchised. Who cares? It's all crapshoot. You don't care. You don't show honor, and you don't show honor in a specific way of engaging. God wants us to engage. I think Peter showed us that by giving that slight elbow, perhaps, to Nero. And we show honor by praying. 1 Timothy 2 is so key on this, where it says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for our leaders, in part selfishly, that we might live a quiet and peaceful life for the sake of the gospel. We want that kind of freedom if we can have it. And Peter goes on, sorry, Paul in 1 Timothy 2 goes on to say, pray also for their salvation because God wants all kinds of people to be saved, not just poor people, not just people like you. He wants government officials, presidents, leaders, and kings to be saved. Government is God's design. It's good. It's to be obeyed and honored. Fourthly, government is not God. It isn't God. When Jesus said those famous words in Mark 12, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. As I said, he was simultaneously acknowledging the legitimacy of Caesar's reign and making it very clear Caesar is not God. Caesar thought he was. He tried to act like a god in many ways. And if Jesus can say that about Caesar, it's also true of those who are godly, those who are good, those who are wise. 
Even when we have rulers who are godly and wise, we still say government is not God. It never has been, never will. God is God. So Psalm 118 tells us it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Even in the time of David, you can say that. Now look at verse 17, this last verse of our passage this morning. You have four short sentences. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now all kinds of ink has been spent on how these four commands relate to each other or if they relate, if there's any flow. I won't tell you all the different options, but I'll tell you what I think Peter's doing here. I think he's giving us two pairs of couplets. So the first two go together, the last two go together. And each couplet makes a contrast, the first and second line. It's like Peter assumes there's a a but, B-U-T, between them. So, honor everyone, but love the brotherhood, right? You don't just show honor to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love them. You honor the world all around you. In a sense, in that sense, it's a small L love. But it's not the brother and sister love that we share as those who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's nation and his people. We're a family. The last pair, the couplet, works in reverse order, I think. So it would be honor the emperor, but fear God. You see the contrast? Peter's saying, don't fear Nero. You honor him. You don't worship him. You worship God. You fear God. Here's what this means. Christians are to show honor not because we love those that we should honor or because we like those that we should honor. And Christians are to give honor not because we're afraid of those that we're to honor. We're afraid of God in a good sense, worshipful sense. Most of us usually have this wrong. We think that there's this innate honor that we show to those that we love or like. And then there's this other kind of unhealthy, reluctant honor that we show to those who we fear. And for everyone else, well... They're freely the objects of our scorn and our gossip and our ridicule. We don't honor them. But Peter insists on carving out a totally different approach. Honor that is not attached to liking them or them deserving this or having earned it. Honor not to those who are always honorable. Honor not attached to fearing them. Even though they could do a whole lot to hurt us but honor attached to obedience to Almighty God. Honor attached to his sovereign design to have rulers for our good, to have government in this world. We are subject to these things for the Lord's sake. We submit and we honor as servants of God. And thus there is a time for godly, resolutely disobeying civil authority. Because God is ultimate and the emperor isn't, there is a time to draw a line in the sand and say, we will not. Daniel is a perfect example of that. In a foreign land, he went along with some weird and foreign things. But he refused with the other three Hebrew guys not to bow down to the golden image in Daniel 4. He refused to not pray. He prayed with the windows open in Daniel 6, even though it meant being thrown into the lion's den. The apostles in Acts 5 are preaching, and they're they're told, we told you not to teach in his name, yet you filled the city with your teaching. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, and were witnesses to these things. As they said in chapter 4, do what you will, but we cannot help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. 
But it's also important to note that though there are examples of, of civil disobedience in the Bible, they're always respectful, measured, thoughtful. Read Paul's defenses in Acts 22 to 28. There are several. Read his speeches before wicked rulers. It's not nasty. It's not filled with vitriol. He doesn't make it personal. He doesn't assume that this is one person attacking him and his rights. He knows it's a whole world that's against God, and he's caught up in the middle of it unavoidably. So in history, there are times to draw a line in the sand. It's appropriate to resist or even oppose Hitler, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. It wouldn't be wrong for a slave during the Civil War to flee his master and join in the fight for freedom. Not because the laws of the South don't apply to him, but because a bigger things at play. He's fighting for what's right. Civil disobedience is possible, but it is rare, and it should not be entered into lightly. We don't ignore the laws we don't like, and we don't oppose everything we disagree with. We refuse to do the things the Lord has forbidden us from doing. When the government says, do this, and God says, don't, we don't. When the government says, you must not, and God has said, you must, we must. We will not bow or bend. But in everything else, we obey. We honor That's what Christians do. As part of God's plan, as a testimony to the world, that's when they'll zip their lips and bow on their knees. Or maybe not. But that's what Peter says here, is the hope and the plan. That's the playbook. So we don't get our playbook from the pundits. We don't get our playbook from talk radio. We don't learn our manners from CNN or Fox News. If the government says don't witness, or they say don't meet together for corporate worship, or don't discipline your children, or don't preach about that, or don't teach children your religion. If they say don't you say certain things are wrong, that's hate speech. If they say don't you say certain religions are wrong, If they begin to say that doctors must provide and perform abortions, if they begin to say that certain companies must pay for abortified drugs, or that pastors must perform same-sex marriages, we say, we will not bow, we will not bend, we will not budge. It is better for us to obey God than man. We will not follow the world simply adopting their beliefs and practices. We will not flee the world like we could find some sort of Christian city and live there. We will not faint. The Lord is with us. He's in it. And we also will not fight the world, at least not with their tools, at least not like they do. That's not what the war is and where the war lies. Now, Bob Dylan said, The times, they are a-changing, and that's true not just for the 60s, but today as well. I'm sure you've noticed in the last year, 18 months or so, it seems like there have been seismic shifts in our country, politically, morally, religiously. Hobby Lobby may soon be fined $1.3 million a day for refusing to provide abortocidal drugs for their employees, gay marriage, state after state. Tim Tebow was forced to back out of speaking at a church in Texas because that church believes that homosexuality is a sin. Louis Giglio was forced to back out of praying at the president's inauguration because he preached one sermon 14 years ago on how homosexuality was sin. On and on the list could go. And it sure seems like like, like the list is just going to keep growing. So can I wrap this up with two minutes of quick bullet points of how we should think about these things and what we should do as Christians in these days, these precarious days. Number one, we do what we can. We remember that engaging is honoring, especially in a democracy. So vote and write and read and talk 
and do so according to what God's word says. Don't hear me say, don't do anything. There's no point in anything. Don't hear me say that somehow, on the other hand, that somehow we haven't gotten hold of a real bad version of that. I think the church needs to repent in some things as we go about engaging. But do what we can and don't miss that I'm saying that. Secondly, keep doing good. Keep showing honor. Be humble and respectful. That's our playbook. Be resilient in spirit. We play by a different set of rules and we Christians should act like it. Third, don't be surprised by opposition. That says it so in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Don't be surprised by this fiery trial that's come upon you like some strange thing has happened. As far as American history goes, today's a strange day for us. And as far as church history goes, well, what's been strange is 250 years before. The freedoms that we've enjoyed for 250 years is unusual in the Bible and unusual in church history. Fourth, know that this suffering is not a sign of God's disfavor. Fifth, remember that this may be a season of testing. Embrace it as such if it is. Sixth, prepare yourself spiritually for things to get worse. They could. They may not. We hope for the best. We prepare for the worst. It may continue to go downhill. So we prepare our kids to live in a different world than the one we grew up in. Seventh, we pray. We pray for ourselves, for our family, for other Christians, for our church. You pray for your pastors. And we pray for government officials. We pray that they allow us to lead peaceable, quiet lives here. And we pray for them to be saved like we do our neighbors and friends and family members. Eighth, we look to Jesus and his example. That's so much of what's in 1 Peter. Nine, we look to our brothers and sisters in history or in persecuted countries today for an example. Ten, we read 1 Peter again and again and again because it was written for times like these. It was written for people like us. It was written for those who were increasingly disenfranchised and misunderstood and misrepresented and oppressed and squeezed out people who were surprised by it. They thought it was strange like us. Eleven, trust that God will have his way. That Jesus is building his church. That he's sovereign in this. He's not surprised by it. He's in it. Twelve, believe that there is opportunity in weakness. In history, Jesus often adds to his church and strengthens his church, not despite persecution, but through persecution. Thirteen, entrust justice to the final judge. It won't get right down here until he comes back. So we look beyond this temporary exile. We look beyond to our celestial city and we put our hope fully in the grace that's to be revealed when Jesus comes again. Fourteenth, remember what saves. Remember what set us free from the passions of our former ignorance and what ransomed us from the feudal ways that we inherited from our for- our fathers, Jesus in his blood, and that's what we needed most, still need most, and what everyone around us needs most. So 15th, last one, speak more about Jesus and the gospel than political decline and public sins. Speak more about Jesus. I didn't say don't ever speak about political and issues and societal decline, but something is wrong when we're more bold about immigration policy than we are about Jesus. Something's wrong when our Facebook page has a mantra of how bad the president is rather than a mantra of how great Jesus is. We must speak about Jesus because he's the one. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession that we may proclaim. Not one side of the aisle or the other. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray for his help now. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you would give us clarity and wisdom, help and strength, conviction, boldness. pray you'd remove fears and help us to trust in you. Help us to be wise in this world. 
wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Help us to obey 1 Peter 2. Lord, if anything I said this morning is unhelpful or untrue, would you just help people to forget it? Whatever is biblical, Lord, we pray we would shape our lives around it by your grace and for your glory. It's all for your glory, Lord. We're reminded of that once again. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.